Greetings, everyone. Welcome once again to Oleander Book Club. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. Here we are. I've got my fan on in the studio, if you're wondering, what's that pleasant white noise? Maybe I could listen to a podcast about that to help me fall asleep during this Thanksgiving vacation where I don't actually go anywhere. Hey, something to help you out, you know, if you're an essential worker from your time off from work, joke, joke, I myself work, uh, my uh, IRL show, uh, job where I work for a living I was recently on Shark Tank, so if you watch Shark Tank, there was a mushroom company that was on there that I guess did really well, and that's that's the company that I currently work for. Hopefully that doesn't timestamp poorly in the future. Anyway, so hey, here we are. We are. I, I want I want everyone to have something to listen to, as I was saying. So hey. Um, why, why, why don't I have some more Lupin? Why don't I have some more Asa Lupin? And we're going to do that. So enjoy this. And I'm just going to use this intro. So after the one minute 50 mark, if you hear a different number than the last time you listened to it, then it's a new episode. Here we go. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. PGTTCM, Radio Free Oleander. Here we go. Recording by Gesine. The Hollow Needle. Further Adventures by Arsène Lupin. By Maurice Leblanc. Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. Chapter 7. The Treatise of the Needle It is four o'clock in the morning. Isidore has not returned to the Lycée Janson. He has no intention of returning before the end of the war of extermination which he has declared against Lupin. This much he swore to himself under his breath while his friends drove off with him, all faint and bruised in a cab. A mad oath, an absurd and illogical war, what can he do, a single unarmed stripling, against that phenomenon of energy and strength? On which side is he to attack him? He is unassailable. Where to wound him? He is invulnerable. Where to get at him? He is inaccessible. Four o'clock in the morning. Isidore has once again accepted his schoolfellow's hospitality. Standing before the chimney in his bedroom with his elbows flat on the mantel-shelf and his two fists under his chin, he stares at his image in the looking-glass. He is not crying now. He can shed no more tears, nor fling himself about on his bed, nor give way to despair, as he has been doing for the last two hours and more. He wants to think, to think and understand. And he does not remove his eyes from the same eyes reflected in the glass, as though he hoped to double his powers of thought by contemplating his pensive image, as though he hoped to find at the back of that mirrored Baudrolet the unsolvable solution of what he does not find within himself. He stands thus until six o'clock, and little by little, 
the question presents itself to his mind with the strictness of an equation, bare and dry and cleared of all the details that complicate and obscure it. Yes, he has made a mistake. Yes, his reading of the document is all wrong. The word Egille does not point to the castle or the Creuse. Also the word Demoiselle cannot be applied to Raymonde de Saint-Véron and her cousin because the text of the document dates back for centuries. Therefore, all must be done over again from the beginning. How? One piece of evidence alone would be incontestable. The book published under Louis XIV. Now, of the 200 copies printed by the person who was presumed to be the man with the iron mask, only two escaped the flames. One was purloined by the captain of the guards and lost. The other was kept by Louis XIV himself, handed down to Louis XV and burnt by Louis XVI. But a copy of the essential page the page containing the solution of the problem, or at least a cryptographic solution, was conveyed to Marie-Antoinette, who slipped it into the binding of her book of hours. What has become of this paper? Is it the one which Boutroulet has held in his hands and which Lupin recovered from him through Bredoux, the magistrate's clerk? Or is it still in Marie-Antoinette's book of hours? And the question resolves itself into this. What has become of the Queen's Book of Hours? After taking a short rest, Boutroulet consulted his friend's father, an old and experienced collector, who was often called upon officially to give an expert opinion, and who had quite lately been invited to advise the director of one of our museums on the drawing up of the catalogue. Marie-Antoinette's Book of Hours? he exclaimed. Why, the Queen left it to her waiting woman, with secret instructions to forward it to Count Fersen. After being piously preserved in the Count's family, it has been for the last five years in a glass case. In a glass case? In the Musée Carnavalet, quite simply. When will the museum be open? At twenty minutes from now, as it is every morning. Isidore and his friend jumped out of a cab at the moment when the doors of Madame de Sévigné's old mansion were opening. Hello, Mr. Boutrelet! A dozen voices greeted his arrival. To his great surprise, he recognized the whole crowd of reporters who were following up the mystery of the hollow needle, and one of them exclaimed, Funny, isn't it, that we should all have had the same idea? Take care, Arsène Lupin may be among us. They entered the museum together. The director was at once informed, placed himself entirely at their disposal, took them to the glass case and showed them a poor little volume, devoid of all ornament, which certainly had nothing royal about it. Nevertheless, they were overcome by a certain emotion at the sight of this object which the Queen had touched in those tragic days, which her eyes, red with tears, had looked upon, and they dared not take it and hunt through it, it was as though they feared lest they should be guilty of a sacrilege. Come, Monsieur Boutrelet, it's your business. He took the book with an anxious gesture. The description corresponded with that given by the author of the pamphlet. Outside was a parchment cover, dirty, stained and worn in places, and under it 
the real binding in stiff leather. With what a thrill Boutrelier felt for the hidden pocket. Was it a fairy tale? Or would he find the document written by Louis the Sixteenth and bequeathed by his queen to her fervent admirer? At the first page, on the upper side of the book, there was no receptacle. Nothing, he muttered. Nothing, they echoed, palpitating with excitement. But at the last page, forcing back the book a little, he at once saw that the parchment was not stuck to the binding. He slipped his fingers in between. There was something, yes, he felt something, a paper. Oh, he gasped, in an accent almost of pain. Here, is it possible? Quick, quick, they cried. What are you waiting for? He drew out a sheet folded in two. Well, read it. There are words on it in red ink. Look, it might be blood, pale, faded blood. Read it. He read, To you, Fasson, for my son, 16th of October, 1793. Marie-Antoinette. And suddenly... Boutroulet gave a cry of stupefaction. Under the Queen's signature there were, there were two words in black ink, underlined with a flourish. Two words. Arsène Lupin. All, in turns, took the sheet of paper, and the same cry escaped from the lips of all of them. Marie-Antoinette, Arsène Lupin! A great silence followed. That double signature, those two names coupled together, discovered hidden in the Book of Hours, that relic in which the poor Queen's desperate appeal had slumbered for more than a century, that horrible date of the 16th of October, 1793, the day on which the royal had fell. All of this was most dismally and disconcertingly tragic. Arsène Lupin, stammered one of the voices, thus emphasizing the scare that underlay the sight of that demonical name at the foot of that hallowed page. Yes, Arsène Lupin, repeated Boutrelet. The Queen's friend was unable to understand her desperate dying appeal. He lived with a keepsake in his possession, which the woman whom he loved had sent him, and he never guessed the reason of that keepsake. Lupin discovered everything, on the other hand, and took it. Took what? The document, of course. The document written by Louis the Sixteenth, And it is that which I held in my hands. The same appearance, the same shape, the same red seals. I understand why Lupin would not leave me a document which I could turn to account by merely examining the papers, the seals, and so on. And then? Well, then, since the document is genuine, since I have, with my own eyes... Seen the marks of the red seals, since Marie-Antoinette herself assures me, by these few words in her hand, that the whole story of the pamphlet, as printed by Monsieur Massibon, is correct, because the problem of the hollow needle really exists, I am now certain to succeed. But how? Whether genuine or not, the document is of no use to you if you do not manage to decipher it, because Louis the Fourteenth destroyed the book that gave the explanation. 
yes, but the other copy, which King Louis the Sixteenth captain of the guards snatched from the flames, was not destroyed. How do you know? Prove the contrary. After uttering this defiance, Boutrelli was silent for a time, and then, slowly, with his eyes closed, as though trying to fix and sum up with his thoughts, he said, Possessing the secret, the captain of the guards begins by revealing it bit by bit in the journal found by his descendant. Then comes silence. The answer to the riddle is withheld. Why? Because the temptation to make use of the secret creeps over him little by little, and he gives way to it. A proof? His murder. A further proof? The magnificent jewel found upon him, which he must undoubtedly have taken from some royal treasure, the hiding place of which, unknown to all, would just constitute the mystery of the hollow needle. Lupin conveyed as much to me. Lupin was not lying. Then what conclusion do you draw, Poutrelet? I draw this conclusion, my friends, that it be a good thing to advertise this story as much as possible so that people may know, through all the papers, that we are looking for a book entitled The Treatise of the Needle. It may be fished out from the back shelves of some provincial library. The paragraph was drawn up forthwith, and Boutrelet set to work at once, without even waiting for it to produce a result. A first scent suggested itself. The murder was committed near Guillon. He went there the same day. Certainly he did not hope to reconstruct a crime perpetrated two hundred years ago. But all the same, there are crimes that leave traces in the memories, in the traditions of a countryside. They are recorded in the local chronicles. One day... Some provincial archaeologist, some lover of old legends, some student of the minor incidents of the life of the past makes them the subject of an article in a newspaper or of a communication to the academy of his departmental town. Poutrelet saw three or four of these archaeologists. With one of them in particular, an old notary, he examined the prison records, the ledgers of the old bailiwicks and the parish registers. There was no entry referring to the murder of a captain of the guards in the 17th century. He refused to be discouraged and continued his search in Paris, where the magistrate's examination might have taken place. His efforts came to nothing. But the thought of another track sent him off in a fresh direction. Was there no chance of finding out the name of the captain whose descendant served in the armies of the Republic and was quartered in the temple during the imprisonment of the royal family? By dint of patient working, he ended up making out a list in which two names at least presented an almost complete resemblance. Monsieur de Larbirie, under Louis XIV, and Citizen Larbrie, under the Terror. This already was an important point. He stated it with precision in a note which he sent to the papers, asking for any information concerning this Larbirie or his descendants. It was Monsieur Massibon, the Massibon of the pamphlet, the member of the Institute, who replied to him. Sir, allow me to call your attention to the following passage of Voltaire, which I came upon in his manuscript of Le siècle de Louis XIV. Chapter 25, 
particularités et anecdotes du règne. The passage has been suppressed in all the printed editions. Quote, I have heard it said by the late Monsieur de Comartin, intendant of finance, who was a friend of Chamillard the minister, that the king one day left hurriedly in his carriage at the news that Monsieur de Larbery had been murdered and robbed of some magnificent jewels. He seemed greatly excited and repeated, All is lost, all is lost. In the following year, the son of this Larbery and his daughter, who had married the Marquis de Villene, were banished to their estates in Provence and Brittany. We cannot doubt that there is something peculiar in this. Unquote. I, in my turn, will add that we can doubt it all the less inasmuch as Monsieur de Chamillard, according to Voltaire, was the last minister who possessed the strange secret of the Iron Mask. You will see for yourself, sir, the profit that can be derived from this passage and the evident link established between the two adventures. As for myself, I will not venture to imagine any very exact surmise as regards the conduct, the suspicions, and the apprehensions of Louis the Fourteenth in these circumstances. But, on the other hand, seeing that Monsieur de Larbrie left a son, who was probably the grandfather of Larbrie, the citizen officer, and also a daughter... Is it not permissible to suppose that a part of the papers left by Larbery came to the daughter and that among these papers was the famous copy which the captain of the guards saved from the flames? I have consulted the country house yearbook. There is a baron de Villene living not far from Rennes. Could he be a descendant of the Marquis? At any rate, I wrote to him yesterday on chance to ask if he had not in his possession a little old book bearing on its title page the word Aiguille, and I am awaiting his reply. It would give me the greatest pleasure to talk of all these matters with you. If you can spare the time, come and see me. I am, sir, etc., etc. P.S. Of course I shall not communicate these little discoveries to the press. Now that you are near the goal, discretion is essential. Boutrelet absolutely agreed. He even went further. To two journalists who were worrying him that morning, he gave the most fanciful particulars as to his plans and his state of mind. In the afternoon, he hurried round to see Massibon, who lived at 17 Quai Voltaire. To his great surprise, he was told that Monsieur Massibon had gone out of town unexpectedly, leaving a note for him in case he should call. Isidore opened it and read, I have received the telegram, which gives me some hope, so I am leaving town and shall sleep at Rennes. You might take the evening train and, without stopping at Rennes, go on to the little station of Villene. We would meet at the castle, which is two miles and a half from the station. The programme appealed to Boutrelet, and especially the idea that he would reach the castle at almost the same time as Massibon, for he feared some blunder on the part of that inexperienced man. He went back to his friend and spent the rest of the day with him. In the evening, he took the Brittany Express and got out at Villene at six o'clock in the morning. He did the two and a half miles between bushy woods on foot. He could see the castle perched on a height from a distance. It was a hybrid edifice, a mixture of the Renaissance and Louis-Philippe styles. 
but it bore a stately air, nevertheless, with its four turrets and its ivy-mantled drawbridge. Isidore felt his heart beat as he approached. Was he really nearing the end of his race? Did the castle contain the key to the mystery? He was not without fear. It all seemed too good to be true, and he asked himself if he was not once more acting in obedience to some infernal plan contrived by Lupin. If Massibon was not, for instance, a tool in the hands of his enemy. He burst out laughing. Tut-tut, it's becoming absurd. One would really think that Lupin was an infallible person who foresees everything, a sort of divine omnipotence against whom nothing can prevail. Dash it all! Lupin makes his mistakes. Lupin, too, is at the mercy of circumstances. Lupin has an occasional slip. And it is just because of his slip in losing the document that I am beginning to have the advantage of him. Everything starts from that. And his efforts, when all is said, serve only to repair the first blunder. And blithely, full of confidence, Bautrelet rang the bell. Yes, sir? said the servant who opened the door. Can I see the Baron de Villene? And he gave the man his card. Monsieur le Baron is not up yet, but if monsieur will wait. Has not someone else been asking for him, a gentleman with a white beard and a slight stoop? asked Boutrelet, who knew Massibon's appearance from the photographs in the newspapers. Yes, the gentleman came about ten minutes ago. I showed him into the drawing-room. If monsieur will come this way... The interview between Massibon and Boutrelet was of the most cordial character. Isidore thanked the old man for his first-rate information, which he owed to him, and Massibon expressed his admiration for Boutrelet in the warmest terms. Then they exchanged impressions on the document, on their prospects of discovering the book, and Massibon repeated what he had heard at Rennes regarding Monsieur de Villene. The baron was a man of sixty, who had been left a widower many years ago, and who led a very retired life with his daughter, Gabrielle de Villemont. This lady had just suffered a cruel blow through the loss of her husband and her eldest son, both of whom had died as the result of a motor-car accident. Monsieur le baron begs the gentleman to be good enough to come upstairs. The servant led the way to the first floor, to a large bare-walled room, very simply furnished with desks, pigeonholes, and tables covered with papers and account books. The baron received them very affably and with a volubility often displayed by people who live too much alone. They had great difficulty in explaining the object of their visit. Oh, yes, I know, you wrote to me about it, Monsieur Massibon. It has something to do with a book about a needle, hasn't it? A book which is supposed to have come down to me from my ancestors? Just so. I may as well tell you that my ancestors and I have fallen out. They had funny ideas in those days. I belong to my own time. I have broken with the past. Yes, said Boutrelet impatiently, but have you no recollection of having seen the book? Certainly, I said so in my telegram. He exclaimed, addressing Monsieur Massibon, who, in his annoyance, was walking up and down the room and looking out of the tall windows. Certainly, or at least my daughter thought she had seen the title among the thousands of books that lumber in the library upstairs, for I don't care about reading myself. 
I don't even read the papers. My daughter does sometimes, but only when there is nothing the matter with Georges, her remaining son. As for me, as long as my tenants pay their rents and my leases are kept up, you see the account books. I live in them, gentlemen, and I confess that I know absolutely nothing whatever about the story of which you wrote to me in your letter, Monsieur Massibon. Isidore Boutrelet, nerve shattered at all this talk, interrupted him bluntly. I beg your pardon, monsieur, but the book. My daughter has looked for it. She looked for it all day yesterday. Well? Well, she found it. She found it a few hours ago, when you arrived. And where is it? Where is it? Why, she put it on that table. There it is, over there. Isidore gave a bound. At one end of the table, on a muddled heap of papers, lay a little book bound in red Morocco. He banged his fist down upon it as though he were forbidding anybody to touch it, and also a little as though he himself dared not take it up. Well, cried Massibon, greatly excited. I have it. Here it is. We're there at last. But the title, are you sure? Why, of course. Look. Are you convinced? Have we mastered the secret at last? The front page. What does the front page say? Read. The whole truth now first exhibited. One hundred copies printed by myself for the instruction of the court. That's it, that's it, muttered Massibon in a hoarse voice. It's the copy snatched from the flames. It's the very book which Louis the Fourteenth condemned. They turned over the pages. The first part set forth the explanations given by Captain de Larberie in his journal. Get on, get on, said Boutrelet, who was in a hurry to come to the solution. Get on? What do you mean? Not at all. We knew that the man with the iron mask was imprisoned because he knew and wished to divulge the secret of the royal house of France. But how did he know it? And why did he wish to divulge it? Lastly, who was that strange personage? A half-brother of Louis the Fourteenth, as Voltaire maintained, or Mattioli, the Italian minister, as the modern critics declare. Hang it, those are questions of the very first interest. Later, later protested Boutrelet, feverishly turning the pages, as though he feared that the book would fly out of his hands before he had solved the riddle. But, said Massibon, who doted on historical details, we have plenty of time afterward. Let's see the explanation first. Suddenly Boutrelet stopped. The document. In the middle of a left-hand page, his eyes saw the five mysterious lines of dots and figures. He made sure with a glance that the text was identical with that which he had studied so long. The same arrangement of the signs, the same intervals that permitted of the isolation of the word demoiselle and the separation of the two words aiguille and creuse. A short note preceded it. All the necessary indications, it appears, were reduced by King Louis XIII on a little table which I transcribe below. 
Here followed the table of dots and figures. Then came the explanation of the document itself. Boutrelet read in a broken voice. As will be seen, this table, even after we have changed the figures into vowels, affords no light. One might say that in order to decipher the puzzle, we must first know it. It is at most a clue given to those who know the paths of the labyrinth. Let us take this clue and proceed. I will guide you. The fourth line first. The fourth line contains measurements and indications. By complying with the indications and noting the measurements set down, we inevitably attain our object on condition, be it understood, that we know where we are and whither we are going, in a word, that we are enlightened as to the real meaning of the hollow needle. This is what we may learn from the first three lines. The first is so conceived to revenge myself on the king. I had warned him for that matter. Boutrelet stopped, nonplussed. What? What is it? said Massibon. The words don't make sense. No more they do, replied Massibon. The first is so conceived to revenge myself on the king. What can that mean? Damn! yelled Boutrelet. Well? Torn! Two pages! The next two pages! Look at the marks! He trembled, shaking with rage and disappointment. Massibon bent forward. It is true. There are the ends of two pages left, like bookbinders' guards. The marks seem pretty fresh. They've not been cut but torn out, torn out with violence. Look, all the pages at the end of the book have been rumpled. But who can have done it? Who? moaned Isidore, wringing his hands. A servant? An accomplice? All the same, it may date back to a few months since, observed Massibon. Even so, even so, someone must have hunted out and taken the book. Tell me, monsieur, cried Boutrelet, addressing the baron. Is there no one whom you suspect? We might ask my daughter. Yes, yes, that's it. Perhaps she will know. Monsieur de Villene rang for the footman. A few minutes later, Madame de Villemont entered. She was a young woman with a sad and resigned face. Boutrelet at once asked her, You found this volume upstairs, madame, in the library? Yes, in a parcel of books that had not been uncorded. And you read it? Yes, last night. When you read it, were those two pages missing? Try and remember, the two pages following this table of figures and dots. No, certainly not, she said, greatly astonished. There was no page missing at all. Still, somebody has torn... But the book did not leave my room last night... And this morning? This morning I brought it down here myself, when Monsieur Massibon's arrival was announced. Then... Well, I don't understand, unless... But no. What? Georges, my son, this morning, Georges was playing with a book. She ran out headlong, accompanied by Boutrelet, Massibon and the Baron. The child was not in his room. They hunted in every direction. 
At last they found him playing behind the castle. But those three people seemed so excited and called him so peremptorily to account that he began to yell aloud. Everybody ran about to right and left. The servants were questioned. It was an indescribable tumult. And Boutrelet received an awful impression that the truth was ebbing away from him like water trickling through his fingers. He made an effort to recover himself, took Madame de Villemont's arm, and, followed by the baron at Massibon, led her back to the drawing-room and said, "'The book is incomplete. Very well. "'There are two pages torn out. "'But you read them, did you not, madame?' "'Yes.' "'You know what they contained?' "'Yes.' "'Could you repeat it to us?' "'Certainly. "'I read the book with a great deal of curiosity.' but those two pages struck me in particular because the revelations were so very interesting. Well then, speak, madame, speak, I implore you. Those revelations are of exceptional importance. Speak, I beg of you, minutes lost are never recovered. The hollow needle, oh, it's quite simple. The hollow needle means... At that moment, a footman entered the room. A letter for madame... "'Oh, but the postman has passed. "'A boy brought it. "'Madame de Villemont opened the letter, read it, "'and put her hand to her heart, "'turning suddenly livid and terrified, ready to faint. "'The paper had slipped to the floor. "'Boutrelet picked it up and, without troubling to apologise, "'read, "'Not a word. "'If you say a word,' "'Your son will never wake again.' "'My son, my son!' she stammered, "'too weak even to go to the assistance of the threatened child. "'Boutrelet reassured her. "'It is not serious. It's a joke. "'Come, who could be interested?' "'Unless,' suggested Massibon, "'it was Arsène Dupin.' "'Boutrelet made him a sign to hold his tongue.' He knew quite well, of course, that the enemy was there once more, watchful and determined, and that was just why he wanted to tear from Madame de Villemont the decisive words so long awaited and to tear them from her on the spot that very moment. I beseech you, Madame, compose yourself. We are all here. There is not the least danger. Would she speak? He thought so. He hoped so. She stammered out a few syllables, but the door opened again. This time the nurse entered. She seemed distraught. Monsieur Georges! Madame! Monsieur Georges! Suddenly the mother recovered all her strength. Quicker than any of them, and urged by an unfailing instinct, she rushed down the staircase, across the hall and onto the terrace. There lay little Georges, motionless, on a wicker chair. "'Well, what is it? He's asleep.' "'He fell asleep suddenly, madame,' said the nurse. "'I tried to prevent him, to carry him to his room. "'But he was fast asleep, and his hands... his hands were cold.' "'Cold?' gasped the mother. "'Yes, it's true. "'Oh, dear, oh, dear, if he only wakes up!' Boutrelet put his hand in his trousers' pocket, seized the butt of his revolver, cocked it with his forefinger, 
then suddenly produced the weapon and fired at Massibon. Massibon, as though he were watching the boy's movements, had avoided the shot, so to speak, in advance. But already Boutrelet had sprung upon him, shouting to the servants, Help! It's Lupin! Massibon, under the weight of the impact, fell back into one of the wicker chairs. In a few seconds he rose, leaving Boutrelet stunned, choking, and holding the young man's revolver in his hands. Good, that's all right, don't stir. You'll be like that for two or three minutes. No more. But upon my word, you took your time to recognize me. Was my make-up as old Massibon so good as all that? He was now standing straight up on his legs, his body squared, in a formidable attitude, and he grinned as he looked at the three petrified footmen and the dumbfounded baron. Isidore, you've missed the chance of a lifetime. If you hadn't told them I was Lupin, they'd have jumped on me. And with fellows like that, what would have become of me, by Jove, with four to one against me? He walked up to them. Come, my lads, don't be afraid. I shan't hurt you. Wouldn't you like a sugar stick apiece to screw your courage up? Oh, you, by the way, hand me back my hundred francs note, will you? Yes, yes, I know you. You're the one I bribed just now to give the letter to your mistress. Come, hurry, you faithless servant. He took the blue banknote which the servant handed him and tore it into tiny shreds. The price of treachery, it burns my fingers. He took off his hat and, bowing very low before Madame de Villemont, Will you forgive me, madame? The accidents of life, of mine especially, often drive one to acts of cruelty for which I am the first to blush. But have no fear for your son. It's a mere prick, a little puncture in the arm, which I gave him while we were questioning him. In an hour, at the most, you won't know that it happened. Once more, all my apologies. But I had to make sure of your silence. He bowed again, thanked Monsieur de Villene for his kind hospitality, took his cane, lit a cigarette, offered one to the baron, gave a circular sweep with his hat, and in a patronizing tone said to Boutrelet, Goodbye, baby. And he walked away quietly, puffing the smoke of his cigarette into the servants' faces. Boutrelet waited for a few minutes. Madame de Villemont, now calmer, was watching by her son. He went up to her with the intention of making one last appeal to her. Their eyes met. He said nothing. He had understood that she would never speak now, whatever happened. There, once more, in that mother's brain, the secret of the hollow needle lay buried as deeply as in the night of the past. Then he gave up and went away. It was half past ten. There was a train at eleven fifty. He slowly followed the avenue in the park and turned into the road that led to the station. Well, what do you say to that? It was Massibon, or rather Lupin who appeared out of the wood adjoining the road. Was it pretty well contrived, or was it not? Is your old friend great on the tightrope, or is he not? I'm sure that you haven't got over it, eh? And that you're asking yourself whether the so-called Massibon, member of the Academy of Inscriptions and Belles Lettres, ever existed. But of course he exists. 
I'll even show him to you, if you're good. But first let me give you back your revolver. You're looking to see if it's loaded? Certainly, my lad. There are five charges left, one of which would be enough to send me out Patres. Well, so you are putting it into your pocket. Quite right. I prefer that to what you did up there. A nasty little impulse, that of yours. Still, you're young. You suddenly see, in a flash, that you've once more been done by that confounded Lupin, and that he is standing there in front of you, at three steps from you, and bang, you fire. I'm not angry with you, bless your little heart. To prove it, I offer you a seat in my 100 HP car. Will that suit you? He put his fingers to his mouth and whistled. The contrast was delicious between the venerable appearance of this elderly Massibon and the schoolboy ways and accent which Lupin was putting on. Boutrelet could not help laughing. "'He's laughed! He's laughed!' cried Lupin, jumping for joy. "'You see, baby, what you fall short in is the power of smiling. You're a trifle serious for your age. You're a very likable boy. You have a charming candour and simplicity.' "'but you have no sense of humour. "'He placed himself in front of him. "'Look here. "'Bet you I make you cry. "'Do you know how I was able to follow up all your inquiry? "'How I knew of the letter Massibon wrote you "'and his appointment to meet you this morning at the Chateau de Villene? "'Through the prattle of your friend, the one you're staying with. "'You confide in that idiot.' and he loses no time but goes and tells everything to his best girl, and his best girl has no secrets for Lupin. What did I tell you? I've made you feel, anyhow. Your eyes are quite wet. Friendship betrayed. That upsets you, eh? Upon my word, you're wonderful. I could take you in my arms and hug you. You always wear that look of astonishment which goes straight to my heart. I shall never forget the other evening at Gaillon, when you consulted me. Yes, I was the old notary. But why don't you laugh, youngster? As I said, you have no sense of a joke. Look here, what you want is, what shall I call it, imagination, imaginative impulse. Now I am full of imaginative impulse. A motor was heard panting not far off. Lupin seized Boutrelet roughly by the arm and in a cold voice, looking him straight in the eyes. You're going to keep quiet now, aren't you? You can see there's nothing to be done. Then what's the use of wasting your time and energy? There are plenty of highway robbers in the world. Run after them and let me be. If not... It's settled, isn't it? He shook him as though to enforce his will upon him. Then he grinned. Fool that I am. You leave me alone? You're not one of those who let go. Oh, I don't know what restrains me. In half a dozen turns of the wrist, I could have you bound and gagged, and in two hours, safe under lock and key, for some months to come. And then I could twist my thumbs in all security, withdraw to the peaceful retreat prepared for me by my ancestors, the kings of France, and enjoy the treasures which they have been good enough to accumulate for me. But no, it is doomed that I must go blundering to the end. I can't help it. We all have our weaknesses, 
and I have one for you. Besides, it's not done yet. From now until you put your fingers into the hollow of the needle, a good deal of water will flow under the bridges. Dash it all, it took me ten days. Me, Lupin. You will want ten years at least. There's that much distance between us, after all. The motor arrived, an immense closed car. Lupin opened the door, and Boutrelet gave a cry. There was a man inside, and that man was Lupin, or rather Massibon. Suddenly understanding, he burst out laughing. Lupin said, Don't be afraid, he's sound asleep. I promised that you should see him. Do you grasp the situation now? At midnight, I knew of your appointment at the castle. At seven in the morning, I was there. When Massibon passed, I had only to collect him, give him a tiny prick with a needle, and the thing was done. Sleep, old chap, sleep away. We'll set you down on the slope. That's it, there, capital, right in the sun, then you won't catch cold. Good. And your hat in your hand. Spare a copper, kind gentleman. Oh, my dear old Massibon, so you were after Arsène Lupin. It was really a huge joke to see the two Massibons face to face, one asleep with his head on his chest, the other seriously occupied in paying him every sort of attention and respect. Pity a poor blind man. There, Massibon, there's two sous and my visiting card. And now, my lads, off we go at the fourth speed. Do you hear, driver? You've got to do the seventy-five miles in an hour. Jump in, Isidore. There's a full sitting of the Institute today, and Massibon is to read a little paper, on I don't know what, at half-past three. Well, he'll read them his little paper. I'll dish them up a complete Massibon, more real than the real one, with my own ideas on the lacustrine inscription. I don't have an opportunity of lecturing at the Institute every day. Faster, chauffeur. We're only doing seventy-one and a half. Are you afraid? Remember you with Lupin. Ah, Isidore, and then people say that life is monotonous. Why, life's an adorable thing, my boy. Only one has to skin for joy. Just now, at the castle, when you were chattering with old Villene and I, up against the window, was tearing out the pages of the historic book. And then, when you were questioning the Dame de Villemont about the hollow needle, would she speak? Yes, she would. No, she wouldn't. Yes, no. It gave me goose flesh, I assure you. If she spoke, I should have to build up my life anew. The whole scaffolding was destroyed. Would the footman come in time? Yes, no, there he is. But Boutrelet will unmask me. Never. He's too much of a flat. Yes, though, no, there, he's done it. No, he hasn't. Yes, he's eyeing me. That's it. He's feeling for his revolver. Oh, the delight of it. Isidore, you're talking too much. You'll hurt yourself. Let's have a snooze, shall we? I'm dying of sleep. Good night. Boutrelli looked at him. He seemed almost asleep already. He slept. The motor car, darting through space, rushed toward the horizon that was constantly reached and as constantly retreated. 
there was no impression of towns, villages, fields or forests. Simply space, space devoured, swallowed up. Bautrelli looked at his travelling companion for a long time, with eager curiosity and also with a keen wish to fathom his real character through the mask that covered it. And he thought of the circumstances that confined them, like that, together, in the close contact of that motor car. But, after the excitement and disappointment of the morning, tired in his turn, he too fell asleep. When he woke, Lupin was reading. Boutrelli leant over to see the title of the book. It was the Epistolae Lucilium of Seneca, the philosopher. End of chapter 7 Read by Gesine in March 2007Though very calm in the main and invariably master of himself, Lupin, nevertheless, was subject to moments of exaltation, of a more or less romantic expansiveness, at once theatrical and good-humoured, when he allowed certain admissions to escape him, certain imprudent speeches which a boy like Baudrelet could easily turn to profit. Rightly or wrongly, Baudrelet read one of these involuntary admissions into that phrase, he was entitled to conclude that, if Lupin drew a comparison between his own efforts and Baudrelet's in pursuit of the truth about the Hollow Needle, it was because the two of them possessed identical means of attaining their object, because Lupin had no elements of success different from those possessed by his adversary. The chances were alike. Now, with the same chances, the same elements of success, the same means, Ten days had been enough for Lupin. What were those elements, those means, those chances? They were reduced, when all was said, to a knowledge of a pamphlet published in 1815, a pamphlet which Lupin, no doubt, like Massiban, had found by accident, and thanks to which he had succeeded in discovering the indispensable document in Marie Antoinette's Book of Hours. Therefore, the pamphlet and the document were the only two fundamental facts upon which Lupin had relied. With these, he had built up the whole edifice. He had had no extraneous aid. The study of the pamphlet and the study of the document, full stop, that was all. Well, could not Baudrelet confine himself to the same ground? What was the use of an impossible struggle? What was the use of those vain investigations in which, even supposing that he avoided the pitfalls that were multiplied under his feet, he was sure, in the end, to achieve the poorest of results? His decision was clear and immediate, and in adopting it, he had the happy instinct that he was on the right path. He began by leaving his Janson de Saïs schoolfellow, 
without indulging in useless recriminations, and taking his portmanteau with him, went and installed himself after much hunting about in a small hotel situated in the very heart of Paris. This hotel he did not leave for days. At most, he took his meals at the table d'hôte. The rest of the time, locked in his room, with window curtains close drawn, he spent in thinking. Ten days, Arsène Lupin had said. Beautrelet, striving to forget all that he had done and to remember only the elements of the pamphlet and the document, aspired eagerly to keep within the limit of those ten days. However, the tenth day passed, and the eleventh, and the twelfth, but on the thirteenth day, a gleam lit up his brain, and very soon, with the bewildering rapidity of those ideas which develop in us like miraculous plants, the truth emerged, blossomed, gathered strength. On the evening of the thirteenth day, he certainly did not know the answer to the problem, but he knew, to a certainty, one of the methods which Lupin had beyond a doubt employed. It was a very simple method, hinging on this one question. Is there a link of any sort, uniting all the more or less important historic events with which the pamphlet connects the mystery of the hollow needle? The great diversity of these events made the question difficult to answer. Still, the profound examination to which Beautrelet applied himself ended by pointing to one essential characteristic which was common to them all. Each one of them, without exception, had happened within the boundaries of the old kingdom of Neustria, which correspond very nearly with those of our present-day Normandy. All the heroes of the fantastic adventure are Norman, or become Norman, or play their part in the Norman country. What a fascinating procession through the ages! What a rousing spectacle was that of all those barons, dukes and kings starting from such widely opposite points to meet in this particular corner of the world. Boutrelet turned the pages of history at haphazard. It was Rolf or Roux or Rollo, first duke of Normandy, who was master of the secret of the needle, according to the treaty of Saint-Clair-sur-Epte. It was William the Conqueror, duke of Normandy and king of England, whose banner staff was pierced like a needle. It was at Rouen that the English burned Jane of Arc, mistress of the secret. And right at the beginning of the adventure, who is that chief of the Caletti who pays his ransom to Caesar with the secret of the needle, but the chief of the men of the Cook country, which lies in the very heart of Normandy? The supposition becomes more definite. The field narrows. Rouen, the banks of the Seine, the Coup country. It really seems as though all roads lead in that direction. Two kings of France are mentioned more particularly, after the secret is lost by the dukes of Normandy and their heirs, the kings of England, and becomes the royal secret of France. And these two are King Henry IV, who laid siege to Rouen and won the battle of Arc near Dieppe, and Francis I, who founded the Havre and uttered that suggestive phrase, the kings of France carry secrets that often decide the fate of towns. Rouen, Dieppe, the Havre, the three angles of the triangle, the three large towns 
that occupied the three points. In the center, the Cook Country. The 17th century arrives. Louis XIV burns the book in which a person unknown reveals the truth. Captain de Larbery masters a copy, profits by the secret thus obtained, steals a certain number of jewels, and dies by the hand of highway murderers. Now at which spot is the ambush laid? At Gaillon! At Gaillon, a little town on the road leading from Havre, Rouen, or Dieppe to Paris. A year later, Louis XIV buys a domain and builds the Chateau de l'Aiguille. Where does he select his site? In the Midlands of France, with the result that the curious are thrown off the scent and do not hunt about in Normandy. Rouen, Dieppe, the Havre, the Cauchois Triangle, everything lies there. On one side, the sea, on another, the Seine, on the third, the two valleys that lead from Rouen to Dieppe. A light flashed across Beautrelet's mind. That extent of ground, that country of the high tablelands, which run from the cliffs of the Seine to the cliffs of the Channel, almost invariably constituted the field of operations of Arsène Lupin. For ten years, it was just this district which he parcelled out for his purposes, as though he had his haunt in the very center of the region with which the legend of the Hollow Needle was most closely connected. The affair of Baron Cahorn? On the banks of the Seine, between Rouen and the Havre. The Tiberménil case? At the other end of the tableland, between Rouen and Dieppe. The Gruchet, Montigny, Crasville burglaries? In the midst of the Co country. Where was Lupin going when he was attacked and bound hand and foot in his compartment by Pierre Onfray, the Autoy murderer? To Rouen? Where was Holmlock Shields, Lupin's prisoner, put on board ship? Near the Havre. And what was the scene of the whole of the present tragedy? En Brumessie, on the road between the Havre and Dieppe. Rouen, Dieppe, the Havre, always the Cauchois Triangle. And so, a few years earlier, possessing the pamphlet and knowing the hiding place in which Marie-Antoinette had concealed the document, Arsène Lupin had ended by laying his hand on the famous book of hours. Once in possession of the document, he took the field, found, and settled down as in a conquered country. Beautrelet took the field. He set out in genuine excitement, thinking of the same journey which Lupin had taken, of the same hope with which he must have throbbed when he thus went in search of the tremendous secret which was to arm him with so great a power. Would his, Beautrelet's efforts, have the same victorious results? He left Rouen early in the morning, on foot, with his face very much disguised, and his bag at the end of a stick on his shoulder, like an apprentice doing his round of France. He walked straight to Duclair, where he lunched. On leaving this town, he followed the Seine, and practically did not lose sight of it again. His instinct, strengthened, moreover, by numerous influences, always brought him back to the sinuous banks of the stately river. When the Chateau du Malaquis was robbed, the object stolen from Baron Caon's collection was sent by way of the Seine. The old carvings removed from the chapel at Ambrumessy were carried to the Seine bank. 
He pictured the whole fleet of pinnaces performing a regular service between Rouen and the Havre, and draining the works of art and treasures from a countryside to dispatch them thence to the land of millionaires. I'm burning, I'm burning, muttered the boy, gasping under the truth, which came to him in a mighty series of shocks and took away his breath. The checks encountered on the first few days did not discourage him. He had a firm and profound belief in the correctness of the supposition that was guiding him. It was bold, perhaps, and extravagant. No matter. It was worthy of the adversary pursued. The supposition was on a level with the prodigious reality that bore the name of Lupin. With a man like that, of what good could it be to look elsewhere than in the domain of the enormous, the exaggerated, the superhuman? Jumiège, the Maire, Saint-Wandry, Caudebec, Tancarville, Quilbeuf were places filled with his memories. How often he must have contemplated the glory of their Gothic steeples or the splendor of their immense ruins. But the Havre, the neighborhood of the Havre, drew Isidore like a beacon fire. The kings of France carry secrets that often decide the fate of towns. Cryptic words, which suddenly for Baudrelet shone bright with clearness. Was this not an exact statement of the reasons that determined Francis I to create a town on this spot, and was not the fate of the Havre de Grasse linked with the very secret of the needle? That's it! That's it! stammered Baudrelet excitedly. The old Norman estuary, one of the essential points, one of the original centers around which our French nationality was formed, is completed by those two forces, one in full view, alive, known to all, the new port commanding the ocean and opening on the world, the other dim and obscure, unknown and all the more alarming, inasmuch as it is invincible and impalpable. A whole sight of the history of France and of the royal house is explained by the needle, even as it explains the whole story of Arsène Lupin. The same sources of energy and power supply and renew the fortunes of kings and of the adventurer. Baudrelet ferreted and snuffed from village to village, from the river to the sea, with his nose in the wind, his ears pricked, trying to compel the inanimate things to surrender that deep meaning. Ought this hill slope to be questioned, or that forest, or the houses of this hamlet, or was it among the insignificant phrases spoken by that peasant yonder that he might hope to gather the one little illuminating word? One morning, he was lunching at an inn, within sight of Honfleur, the old city of the estuary. Opposite him was sitting one of those heavy, red-haired Norman horse dealers who do the fairs of the district, whip in hand and clad in a long smock frock. After a moment, it seemed to Baudrelet that the man was looking at him with a certain amount of attention, as though he knew him, or at least was trying to recognize him. Pooh, he thought. There's some mistake. I've never seen that merchant before, nor he me. As a matter of fact, the man appeared to take no further interest in him. He lit his pipe, called for coffee and brandy, smoked and drank. When Baudrelet had finished his meal, he paid and rose to go. A group of men entered just as he was about to leave, and he had to stand for a few seconds near the table at which the horse dealer sat. He then heard the man say in a low voice, Good afternoon, Mr. Baudrelet. 
without hesitation, Isidore sat down beside the man and said, Yes, that is my name. But who are you? How did you know me? That's not difficult. And yet, I've only seen your portrait in the papers. But you are so badly, what do you call it in French, so badly made up. He had a pronounced foreign accent, and Baudrelet seemed to perceive, as he looked at him, that he too wore a facial disguise that entirely altered his features. Who are you? he repeated. Who are you? The stranger smiled. Don't you recognize me? No, I never saw you before. Nor I you, but think. The papers print my portrait also, and pretty often. Well, have you got it? No. Holmlock Shears. It was an amusing, and at the same time, a significant meeting. The boy at once saw the full bearing of it. After an exchange of compliments, he said to Shears, I suppose that you are here because of him? Yes. So, so, you think we have a chance in this direction? I'm sure of it. Boutrelet's delight at finding that Shears' opinion agreed with his own was not unmingled with other feelings. If the Englishman attained his object, it meant that, at the very best, the two would share their victory. And who could tell that Shears would not attain it first? Have you any proofs? Any clues? Don't be afraid, print the Englishman, who understood his uneasiness. I am not treading on your heels. With you, it's the document, the pamphlet, things that do not inspire me with any great confidence. And with you? With me, it's something different. Should I be indiscreet if... Not at all. You remember the story of the coronet, the story of the Duc de Charmerac. Yes. You remember Victoire, Lupin's old foster mother, the one whom my good friend Ganimard allowed to escape in a sham prison van? Yes. I have found Victoire's traces. She lives on a farm, not far from National Road number 25. National Road number 25 is the road from the Havre to Lille. Through Victoire, I shall easily get at Lupin. It will take long. No matter. I have dropped all my cases. This is the only one I care about. Between Lupin and me, it's a fight. A fight to death. He spoke these words with a sort of ferocity that betrayed all his bitterness at the humiliation which he had undergone, all his fierce hatred of the great enemy who had tricked him so cruelly. Go away now, he whispered. We are observed. It's dangerous. But mark my words. On the day when Lupin and I meet face to face, it will be... it will be tragic. Bautrelet felt quite reassured on leaving Shears. He need not fear that the Englishman would gain on him. And here was one more proof which this chance interview had brought him. The road from the Havre to Lille passes through Dieppe. It is the great seaside road of the Caux country, the coast road commanding the Channel Cliffs. And it was on a farm near this road that Victoire was installed. Victoire, that is to say Lupin, for one did not move without the other, the master without the blindly devoted servant. I'm burning, I'm burning, he repeated to himself. Whenever circumstances bring me a new element of information, it confirms my supposition. On the one hand, 
I have the absolute certainty of the banks of the Seine, on the other, the certainty of the national road. The two means of communication meet at the Havre, the town of Francis I, the town of the secret. The boundaries are contracting, the co country is not large, and even so, I have only the western portion of the co country to search. He set to work with renewed stubbornness. Anything that Lupin has found, he kept on saying to himself, there is no reason for my not finding. Certainly, Lupin had some great advantage over him, perhaps a thorough acquaintance with the country, a precise knowledge of the local legends, or less than that, a memory. Invaluable advantages these, for he, Baudrelet, knew nothing, was totally ignorant of the country, which he had first visited at the time of the Embrumessi burglary, and then only rapidly, without lingering. But what did it matter? Though he had to devote ten years of his life to his investigation, he would carry it to a successful issue. Lupin was there. He could see him. He could feel him there. He expected to come upon him at the next turn of the road, on the skirt of the next wood, outside the next village. And, though continually disappointed, he seemed to find in each disappointment a fresh reason for persisting. Often, he would fling himself on the slope by the roadside and plunge into wild examination of the copy of the document which he always carried on him, a copy, that is to say, with vowels taking the place of the figures. E, A, A, E, E, A, 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 E, 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 Wa, E, E, U, E, O, E, E, O, E, E, Oui, I, e, e. Often also, according to his habit, he would lie down flat on his stomach in the tall grass and think for hours. He had time enough. The future belonged to him. With wonderful patience, he tramped from the sand to the sea and from the sea to the sand, going gradually farther, retracing his steps and never quitting the ground until, theoretically speaking, there was not a chance left of gathering the smallest particle upon it. He studied and explored Montivillier and Saint-Romani and Octeville and Gonneville and Cricoteau. At night, he knocked at the peasants' doors and asked for a lodging. After dinner, they smoked together and chatted. He made them tell him the stories which they told one another on the long winter nights, and he never omitted to insinuate slyly What about the needle? The legend of the hollow needle. Don't you know that? Upon my word, I don't. Never heard of it. Just think. An old wife's tale. Something that has to do with a needle. An enchanted needle, perhaps. I don't know. Nothing. No legend. No recollection. And the next morning, he walked blithely away again. One day... He passed through the pretty village of Saint-Jouin, which overlooks the sea, and descending among the chaos of rocks that have slipped from cliffs, he climbed up to the tableland and went in the direction of the dry valley of Grunval, Cap d'Antifer, and the little creek of Belle Plage. He was walking gaily and lightly, feeling a little tired, perhaps, but glad to be alive, so glad even, 
that he forgot Lupin and the mystery of the hollow needle and Victoire and Shears and interested himself in the sight of nature. The blue sky, the great emerald sea, all glittering in the sunshine. Some straight slopes and remains of brick walls in which he seemed to recognize the vestiges of a Roman camp interested him. Then his eyes fell upon a sort of little castle, built in imitation of an ancient fort, with cracked turrets and Gothic windows. It stood on a jagged, rugged, rising promontory, almost detached from the cliff. A bared gate, flanked by iron handrails and bristling spikes, guarded the narrow passage. Beautrelet succeeded in climbing over, not without some difficulty. Over the pointed door, which was closed with an old rusty lock, he read the words, Fort de Fréfos. He did not attempt to enter, but turning to the right, after going down a little slope, he embarked upon a path that ran along a ridge of land furnished with a wooden handrail. Right at the end was a cave of very small dimensions, forming a sort of watchtower at the point of the rock in which it was hollowed out, a rock falling abruptly into the sea. There was just room to stand up in the middle of the cave. Multitudes of inscriptions crossed one another on the walls. An almost square hole, cut in the stone, opened like a dormer window on the land side, exactly opposite Fort Fréfos, the crenellated top of which appeared at thirty or forty yards' distance. Boutrelet threw off his knapsack and sat down. He had had a hard and tiring day. He fell asleep for a little. Then the cool wind that blew inside the cave woke him up. He sat for a few minutes without moving, absent-minded, vague-eyed. He tried to reflect, to recapture his still torpid thoughts, and as he recovered his consciousness, he was on the point of rising when he received the impression that his eyes, suddenly fixed, suddenly wide open, saw a thrill shook him from head to foot. His hands clenched convulsively and he felt the beads of perspiration forming at the roots of his hair. No, no, he stammered. It's a dream, an hallucination. Let's look, it's not possible. He plunged down on his knees and stooped over. Two huge letters, each perhaps a foot long, appeared cut in relief in the granite of the floor. Those two letters, clumsily but plainly carved, with their corners rounded and their surface smoothed by the wear and tears of centuries, were a D and an F. D and F! Oh, bewildering miracle! D and F, just two letters of the document! Oh, Beautrelet had no need to consult it to bring before his mind that group of letters in the fourth line, the line of the measurements and indications. He knew them well. They were inscribed for all time at the back of his pupils, encrusted for good and all in the very substance of his brain. He rose to his feet, went down the steep road, climbed back along the old fort, hung on to the spikes of the rail again, in order to pass, and walked briskly toward the shepherd whose flock was grazing some way off on a dip in the tableland. That cave over there, that cave... His lips trembled, and he tried to find the words that would not come. The shepherd looked at him in amazement. At last, Isidore repeated, Yes, that cave over there, to the right of the fort. Has it a name? Yes, 
I should think so. All the Etretat folk like to call it the Demoiselle. What? What? What's that you say? Why, of course. It's the Chambre des Demoiselles. Isidore felt like flying at his throat, as though all the truth lived in that man, and he hoped to get it from him at one swoop, to tear it from him. The Demoiselle, one of the words, one of the only three known words of the document. A whirlwind of madness shook Beautrelet where he stood, and it rose all around him, blew upon him like a tempestuous squall that came from the sea, that came from the land, that came from every direction and whipped him with great lashes of the truth. He understood. The document appeared to him in its real sense. The Chambre des Demoiselles. Etretat. That's it, he thought, his brain filled with light. It must be that. But why didn't I guess earlier? He said to the shepherd in a low voice, That will do. Go away. You can go. Thank you. The man, not knowing what to think, whistled to his dog and went. Left alone, Beautrelet returned to the fort. He had almost passed it when suddenly he dropped to the ground and lay cowering against a piece of wall. And wringing his hands, he thought, I must be mad. If he were to see me, or his accomplices, I've been moving about for an hour. He did not stir another limb. The sun went down, little by little. The night mingled with the day, blurring the outline of things. Then, with little imperceptible movements, flat on his stomach, gliding, crawling, he crept along one of the points of the promontory to the extreme edge of the cliff. He reached it. Stretching out his hands, he pushed aside some tufts of grass and his head appeared over the precipice. Opposite him, almost level with the cliff, in the open sea, rose an enormous rock, over eighty yards high, a colossal obelisk, standing straight on its grand base, which showed at the surface of the water, and tapering towards the summit, like the giant tooth of a monster of the deep. White with the dirty grey-white of the cliff, the awful monolith, streaked with horizontal lines marked by flint and displaying the slow work of centuries which had heaped alternate layers of lime and pebble stone one atop of the other. Here and there a fissure, a break, and wherever these occurred a scrap of earth with grass and leaves. And all this was mighty and solid and formidable with the look of an indestructible thing against which the furious assault of the waves and storms could not prevail. And it was definite and permanent and grand, despite the grandeur of the cliffy rampart that commanded it, despite the immensity of the space in which it stood. Potrelet's nails dug into the soil like the claws of an animal ready to leap upon its prey. His eyes penetrated the wrinkled texture of the rock, penetrated its skin, so it seemed to him, its very flesh. He touched it, felt it, took cognizance and possession of it, absorbed and assimilated it. The horizon turned crimson with all the flames of the vanished sun, and long red clouds set motionless in the sky formed glorious landscapes, fantastic lagoons, fiery plains, forests of gold, lakes of blood, 
a whole glowing and peaceful phantasmagoria. The blue of the sky grew darker. Venus shone with a marvelous brightness, then other stars lit up, timid as yet. And Baudrelet suddenly closed his eyes and convulsively pressed his folded arms to his forehead. Over there, oh, he felt as though he would die for joy, so great was the cruel emotion that wrung his heart. Over there, almost at the top of the needle of Etretat, a little below the extreme point round which the sea muse fluttered, a thread of smoke came filtering through a crevice, as though from an invisible chimney. A thread of smoke rose in slow spirals in the calm air of the twilight. End of chapter 8 Whoa, it's raining like crazy right now. Crazy, crazy to hear anything like that happening in Portland or Oregon or wherever. Anyway, thank you for listening. I have been D.B. Spitzer. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, and uh, maybe I'll throw up some kind of Patreon one of these days and uh, update the t-shirt shop if people want to help out. If Hey, look at uh, look at the Facebook. Uh, let people know how to find out, out about us and all that fun stuff. All right. Thank you so much. Enjoy and have a good whatever. All right. Bye.